0: Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Marus, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the organizational changes required to harness the power of technology as part of the digital transformation process. A great deal of recent research finds that simply buying the best or newest technology will not create digital transformation success by itself. Beyond technology, it is imperative to have the right people, processes, and organizational dynamics that will allow companies to be more agile, risk-tolerant, and experimental. In other words, legacy cultures must be disrupted. I'm very excited to have Jerry Kane from Boston College on the show today. Jerry is one of the four authors of the exceptional book, The Technology Fallacy. The book draws on four years of research between MIT Sloan Management Review and Deloitte. That surveyed 16,000 people and included interviews with companies like Walmart, Google, Salesforce, and Marriott, as well as a number of other top brands. The findings reinforce the proposition that there is a need to rethink leadership and talent in the digital age, and that business models need to change. Welcome to the show today, Jerry. First off. I need to compliment you and your co-authors, not only for a great book, but a tremendous title. While many see digital transformation as a call to action for investment in technology, your book tackles the people aspect of digital transformation. Is the technology side unimportant?
1: Uh, No, of course not. What was interesting about the book and its title is we actually came up with the title last. And... So the title is The Technology Fallacy, How People Are the Real Key to Digital Transformation. And because we came up with the title last, we never actually explained in the book what we mean by that. And since then, I've sort of realized just how powerful the title is. When we talk about the technology fallacy, what the technology fallacy is, is the mistaken belief that just because your organization's problems or challenges are caused by digital technology doesn't necessarily mean that the solution to those problems also involve digital technology as well. And in fact, many of the things, the most important things we found that companies deal with aren't technologically related at all. They have to do with things like, you know, developing the right strategy, developing the right talent and leadership models, developing the right culture. And we're not saying that technology is not important at all. But what we are saying is, look, sometimes these people sides are at least as important, if not more important than the technology side.
0: As you did research into the importance of disrupting legacy culture and leadership paradigms, what components
1: of legacy organizations were the most difficult to change? Yeah, you know, and some of the components are actually the things – that we were touting as most important back in the 20th century. So one thing we lift up is this whole Six Sigma thing, that in the late 1990s, Six Sigma, you know, getting your error rates down to nearly nothing was the real drive. Well, Six Sigma and that sort of perfection is really hard to accomplish in a very turbulent environment. And in fact, some of the things we have found is more experimentation is necessary. And if you're going to do more experimentation, then by definition, you're going to have more So it's things like this, getting the appropriate risk tolerance in place is something that a lot of companies struggle with. Because, you know, digital technologies is a moving target. And if you think you have one answer and you've got to get that answer right all the time, it's going to be really hard to adapt and change. What companies need to do are a lot more little experiments, figure out what works, iterate, and then build on the successes.
0: What's interesting is, you know, that's a complete change in mindset, especially for people that have been in an organization for 10, 15, 20 years. The longer, the the more difficult it is. And, you know, change is tough, and our research has found that most people in organizations either prefer to not change at all or change those things that are easy while retaining as much as possible from the past. You know, what we've seen is do today's positive economic environment possibly
1: cause organizations to hold back? That's a good question. We do say um, that if you're waiting for the necessity to show up in your bottom line, it might be too late. It's really hard to innovate from a position of weakness. And several companies I'm actually working with have the foresight that things are going well on the bottom line. They realize things are going well. But as they look ahead five, 10, 15 years, they realize that the environment's going to change and they're trying to pivot amidst the success. A great example here is Walmart. So we interviewed them about three or four years ago for their research. And I admit, when I heard that Walmart was attempting a digital transformation, I laughed because it's like, how do you turn that old, that established, that large of a company around? But as I dug into it, they really were doing some really remarkable things. And some of it was through acquisition. Others of it was just by driving uh, that transformational mindset from the top level, the CEO made his direct reports, digital transformation was a part of their annual review, down to you know the line level employees. And so they really have done a remarkable job. And now when you think of Walmart, you don't laugh when you say digital transformation anymore because they have done quite a bit of really interesting things. The other thing that in your question that, was, that I triggered on was this whole concept of mindset. And that's a major theme in our book is that really digital transformation in my mind is first and foremost about this mindset. If we go back to Carol Dweck's conceptualization of mindset of the fixed versus growth mindset, the fixed mindset says that success or failure is a result of your innate capabilities, and a growth mindset says that your success or failure is a result of the effort and the work you put into things. We actually have some survey questions that suggest that growth mindset is perhaps the biggest distinguisher between companies that are getting it and not getting it. Because we see things like growth mindset mindset at the company level. We're just not a digital company. We're a legacy company. You know, we can't do these things. And in fact, what we're seeing is those that can change that mindset can really accomplish great things. So, you know, as I go around to talk to companies about this, mindset is the first thing that I work on. Because if you can shift that mindset and say, we can do this. Lots of good things can follow.
0: Well, that's interesting because you bring up mindset. And really, when you look at it, a lot of the organizations, in fact, almost every organization on the marketplace today, really started as analog companies. And so you have some leadership and managers within the company that really originated from the analog era. And yet you discuss in your book how maybe the skills needed in the digital area are not that much different than what was needed in the analog era. Is that true?
1: Yeah, well, two responses there. One is, it sort of surprised me what gets defined as a legacy company. Our data suggests that there's actually two big breakpoints. First, if your company is 10 years old or older, you're considered a legacy company. And what's surprising about that is that puts companies like Facebook and Google squarely into this, you know, legacy company set. And in fact, what we've seen is these companies have to adapt too. And we take it for granted that they're digital companies, but there are plenty of digital companies that don't adapt well enough. And it was just, what, about seven years ago when Facebook was going public that people asked, could they transition to the mobile environment from the desktop? And in fact, they put a lot of effort into making that shift. And that was a really big leadership push from Zuckerberg. The other big cutoff is 50 years. So if you're older than 50 years, you struggle with a different set of capabilities and problems. But going back to talent, so what we really talk about in terms of talent is some things change, some things don't. And the real trick is figuring out which is which. And so some of the challenge is, you know, things like vision, things like good communication don't actually change. How they get lived out, however, in a digital world does sometimes change. So, you know, just because somebody uses Slack to communicate with their employees doesn't mean they're an effective communicator. But you may need to use digital technologies to communicate effectively in this day and time. So it's about doing this analysis of you know, how things need to change. We don't want companies or managers to throw the baby out with the bathwater and think everything changes. And we see leaders and managers sometimes making colossally stupid decisions that they should know better because they throw common sense out the window, but also recognize that we need to update things in terms of communication, in terms of how often, you know, and we interact with our employees. Those things need to change because, frankly, the expectations have changed.
0: Well, as you look at the fact that you need new skills, in some cases, organizational structures and leadership perspectives, how do you see some of the best organizations dealing with the whole issue of upskilling, reskilling, and acquiring new talent
1: in the marketplace? Yeah, so one of our interview subjects was the company MetLife. And we asked where they go for talent and where do they look for and what do they look for in the marketplace? And he, you know, very quickly corrected me and said, I want to be clear, we first and foremost want to reskill our employees. We want to make sure our employees can be effective in this new environment. So that we can equip them, and in fact, what we see in our survey data was funny is early stage companies so we we divide our companies up into three different stages early developing and maturing. The early stage companies were obviously at the earliest levels. When asked about their talent and what they do about it, they either go to consultants or actually the second most common response is, I don't know, so I don't even know where we're getting our talent from. Developing companies, their first step is they're developing their own employees, they're providing opportunities for them to learn. And it's important to point out that isn't just training. And in fact, it's not primarily training. What we find is that many of our respondents said, formal training actually has very little impact because unless you have the opportunity to put those skills to work in your day-to-day job, it's not going to have an impact. So it's really about designing work differently so that employees can be exposed to more diverse set of expectations so they can grow those skills. Then the maturing stages, the most advanced companies we looked at, the first response, again, was developing employees. The second most common response was recruiting employees from less digitally capable firms. So what they'll do is a process called passive recruiting. And the passive recruiting will mean they go to LinkedIn, find people with the right skill set and say, hey, how'd you like to come work for a digital leader? Because our data actually shows that employees want to work for digital leaders and they are willing to jump ship if given the opportunity. What's really interesting though, is one factor almost completely reversed that trend and that is if employees felt like they were getting the opportunity to develop skills to make them relevant into a digital world, they were up to 15 times less likely to report wanting to leave their organization in a year. So you know, growing your own employees is not only an important part of you know, making sure they have the right skill set, but it's also an important part of retaining that
0: so on that subject, and it's a great segue, is that, you know, because there's a lack of talent, obviously the demand is causing pay increases to skyrocket. I've spoken to a number of banks that say they have to continually replace employees on about a two-year cycle going back to the university level and trying to take people and moving them forward in almost lockstep to where they were before that. How have you seen that organizations are retaining employees that are in such high demand?
1: You know, it is a good segue because that would have been my answer. But what's interesting is that when we ask respondents, this applies to both leadership and talent. When we ask respondents to what extent do you have enough talent and do you have the right leadership to compete in a digital world? Over 50% of respondents, no matter the company's maturity level, said we need new leaders And more talent. So the bottom line is nobody has enough talent. So everybody's looking for more opportunities to grow. The difference between those high and low maturity companies isn't whether they have the talent, is whether they're doing the right things to develop that talent. In terms of both leadership and talent, the digitally maturing companies, the gap between who wanted more talent was actually pretty small. The gap between the companies that were actually doing something to develop that talent was pretty staggering. It's something like only 10% of early stage companies said we were doing enough to develop our employees to get the digital skills they needed, whereas opposed to about 80% of the maturing companies. So that's a huge jump there that distinguishes the leaders from the laggards.
0: That is staggering. In your book, you discuss the concept of digital maturity. Do you think there's a correlation between an organization's, let's call it innovation maturity, and their digital maturity?
1: You know, that's a good question, uh, because I would say innovation maturity is actually part of digital maturity. And in fact, it, this didn't make it into the book, but we did another year of research after the book was published that looked into innovation. And two things jumped out there. First was the differences between the have and have-nots, between those that were sort of doing the right amount of digital innovation and those that weren't, was about 10%. So, the early stage companies, by and large, said they were doing less than 10% of their time for innovation, whereas the digitally maturing companies said we had about 10% or more time to innovate. And so, I would argue that all companies – spend 10% of their employees' time innovating. And that can be in a number of different ways. That can be through rotating them through new and challenging projects. That can be about doing innovation competitions within the company. You know, I've seen a number of different ways. What doesn't work is that the old Google 20% time, you know, if you just say, hey, or 10% time in this case, if you just say, okay, take 10% of your time, what happens is the day-to-day job Always crowds it out. And so you need these innovative approaches to giving your employees that 10% of time to carve out to innovate. So, whereas almost all companies said that digital innovation was an important part of their digital strategy, whether they were doing it or not was the big difference. John Hagel, the management consultant with Deloitte Center for the Edge, really talked about how. Every company has an innovation outpost out in Silicon Valley, but the innovations are never actually able to work back into the core business. What we found that the biggest differentiator between those companies that were doing innovation right and those just doing innovation theater was do those innovations that happen in the experiments actually get rolled out across the enterprise? And that's the biggest separator from the more and less digitally mature companies. And doesn't that get back to
0: culture? Because, you know, a lot of organizations say, okay, checkbox, I have an innovation lab or I have a, an outpost in Silicon Valley. When if you don't have a, an overall innovation culture, if the employees and the staff and the teams and the managers don't believe it's part of the blood of the organization, then they just go through the motions and it really never sees the light of day.
1: Absolutely. And the whole third part of our book deals with culture. And some of our reviewers have said that this is actually where the biggest value is. So maybe we should have put it first. The way we first got into culture was, I confess that I really didn't like our early developing and maturing phrases that we used. It just sounded too consultany for me. And so I told my team, okay, how about we do something different? Let's come up with you know, different paths to digital maturity. Let's come up with a cultural index of different ways to approach this. And we asked them about questions such as risk tolerance and collaboration and organization around cross-functional teams. And there's one or two more in there that I can't come up with off the top of my head. And so I was planning to do, you know, saying, you know, there are four different types of digital companies. And what we did was a statistical analysis called cluster analysis on this data, which actually, puts the companies of like type into the same groups. And what resulted was both the most disappointing and encouraging result I've ever had in my research, which is... Basically, the cultural groups came out to be almost 100% correlated, like 95% correlated with our early developing and maturity levels that we had come up with. So what that says to me is that digital culture is actually a really important driver. One, it says it's very highly correlated with digital maturity. Our subsequent research showed that actually culture is an important driver of digital maturity. When we asked digitally mature companies what was the way they most drove digital innovation and digital change, it was through this culture. So culture really becomes this virtuous cycle that if you can start to develop the right culture, you can get better digital innovation, which then helps feedback into your culture. If you don't get the culture piece right, it doesn't really matter if you're innovating because those innovations will never ever see the light of day. They will never affect your core business. They will never sort of fundamentally change change your mindset. And so when companies ask where do they start with respect to digital transformation, I say, you know, I don't know what your digital strategy should be. I don't know what technology you should buy, but what I do know is that you need these cultural aspects in place. So let's start working on those.
0: You know, in the banking industry as with many of the verticals that we're talking about, transformation has really been slow and usually driven by competition today, it obviously is going at lightning speed, you know, different than before. It's driven by the consumer. How do organizations develop strategies and tactics that are both at speed and at
1: scale? Well, you know, so if we go back, yes, it's originally driven by consumers. What A lot of our respondents we're dealing with now are also saying it is currently being driven by employees. And it goes back to that talent issue that we had before. In some ways, your competition for talent Isn't the other organizations in your industry, it's Facebook, it's Google, it's Uber, not that your employees are going to go there, but what they expect, what your employees are used to doing is having very seamless, effective ways of dealing with companies. And whereas many companies are great at dealing with their customers, they're not great at dealing with their employees. What we find, you know, a great example was we interviewed the chief human relations officer of Disney, and he said... Disney, great digital company. They are fabulous at dealing with their customers using digital platforms. He said the only restaurant his employees couldn't order from using a mobile app was their own internal commissary. And that in some ways it was easier for employees to apply for jobs outside of the organization than it was to apply for a transfer or a job inside the organization. He said that's a real problem. We our systems were making it easier for our own employees to actually go outside the company, and that's a problem. As far as how do you design scope and scale, so it is this culture, it's this experimentation mindset, et cetera, et cetera. But what we suggest is starting small, sort of agile methods where you do small projects of innovation, you figure out what works. And when it fails, you figure out why it fails and you try again. And if it's successful, you use that success to drive change or you build on that success. And so it's really not about a massive digital transformation effort. It's about a lot of little transformations that happen over time. It does mean, and this is going to scare managers, that you do need to give up a little bit of control. What we found was that digitally maturing companies were more likely to push decision-making lower into the organization because it allows those teams that are doing the innovations to iterate more quickly. And that's where you get it at scale. Now, as you push decision-making down, it becomes more important to communicate effectively so your teams know what the goals are and they don't get out of control it makes ethics more important because as teams run into things that have not part of the rule book they need to be able to make decisions that are in line with your company values but what was interesting is when we asked i don't remember exactly how the question was phrased but when we asked about where the biggest barriers to doing this was my expectation was that senior leadership was gonna be very reluctant to push decision-making down into the organization, to let go of control. In fact, what we found was the opposite was true. Middle management was very reticent to step up and take this decision-making responsibility. And so how do you sort of create opportunities, create a permission-giving organization where you incentivize people to step up and make decisions, where you have their back when they make mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you create the type of culture where people are going to be comfortable making decisions within their sphere? Of influence, and again, going back to what has changed, that's a big thing that's changed.
0: What's interesting is what we've seen is, as you mentioned, is it is it gets back to people and the ability for people to embrace change. I mean, it's a it's a human aspect to it that it's hard to embrace change to take change that you've maybe spent decades building your career based on the way the bank does things or the organization does things, and now all of a sudden you're being asked by maybe your supervisor. To do things completely differently without really any tangible way of knowing that's going to be successful. It's a human nature aspect, isn't it?
1: Oh, sure. Welcome to the 21st century. It would be great if how we did business in the 10 20 30 years ago could apply to you know uniformly at today but you know things have changed the internet has changed things mobile technologies have changed things and if you just look back and analytics and big data is changing things and if we look forward to the future as far as Artificial intelligence, blockchain, autonomous vehicles, augmented reality, virtual reality. It'd be nice if we could just do business the way we all were taught to do it 25 years ago. But change is the new normal. And it's not just, oh, I'm changing because I want to change or I'm changing because we want to be innovative and cool. We are changing because the world is changing. And if we want to remain competitive, we have to change with it. There are plenty of examples. You know, in the hearing aid industry, for instance, additive manufacturing or 3D printing completely disrupted that industry within about a course of about 18 months. That if you were behind the curve and you didn't pay attention to those trends, those companies that want to do business the old way, are no longer here. Walmart, I bragged on them a while ago about how good of a job they were doing with digital. And they were going from a position of strength. But what they did was they looked 10 years into the future and realized that their customers were going to be shopping in very different ways in 10 years. And if they didn't adapt, they wouldn't be here. I would argue if Walmart is worried about its future and it doesn't adapt, every company needs to adapt. And so I would love to say we can just do things the way we once did, but it's not feasible. Yeah, we have some older employees, who are trying to run out the clock and say all I got to do is get to, you know, retirement age, but that's not a long-term management strategy. And so you do need to get people who are visionary, who see the importance of this change, who can really and some of it's evangelical. You know, you just you got to cast this vision for what your organization can be and get people on board to making it happen. And you can't have a vision if you don't have a certain amount of digital literacy. So I do encourage managers and boards and executive teams. If you have not updated your own digital knowledge in about within about five years, I would argue you need to go do that again today. And now, fortunately, we're in the golden age of learning. It's so getting that knowledge is, has never been more accessible. And yet, people repeatedly have trouble doing that, or just don't take the time. But I was adapting to change is the business challenge of the 21st century? And in fact, we asked, we asked our respondents an open-ended survey question. We just gave them a blank box and said, what is the biggest difference between doing business in a digital age versus a traditional one? Like 25% in this free form answer said pace of change was the biggest challenge. That is the defining business challenge of the 21st century and how companies deal with that, how they address that is going to be the key differentiator. How's that for a bold statement?
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting is it's really a social political issue as well. I mean, isn't everything that's going on in the UK and the United States and virtually every country in the world around – there's a steadfast group of people that really don't want change to happen and then those that realize it's not a choice matter. It's going to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are actually two really important political issues going on here. One is the use of digital technologies in communication and in election politics. You know, I joke with my students that for the past really 16 years now, every election has been the first social media election because how the technologies get adapted and used has been entirely different in each four-year cycle and it will be interesting to see what happens coming up in the u.s political cycle The second one and not to get too much on a you know a high horse here is income inequality you know what digital technologies does the scalability is just huge you know, Google is about the size of AT&T 40 years ago in terms of – Relative revenues, and yet it's one-tenth the size in terms of employees. So, simply with information technology, we're able to do more with fewer people, and relatively small companies can have a huge global impact. And so, what does that mean for income inequality and the type of society we want to create? And in fact, you're seeing business leaders begin to step up and say, hey, we need to take a more active role in helping make this happen. Because I do think it is. Is a systemic societal issue that is caused by digital technologies that is solvable, but it won't be solved without conscious effort. And in fact, the MIT economist David Artur has a really nice TED talk on this. And he talks about how 100 years ago, as we were going from being an agricultural economy to being an industrial economy, what the U.S. did was have the high school movement. They said, okay, tell you what, kids, you're not going to work on the farm anymore. Now you have to go to school until you're at least 16. That cost a ton of money. That had a ton of upheaval, but it created an industrial society going into World War II in that era that was a powerhouse. And so that's the type of change I think we're going to need to be looking at as we look at you know, how society is changing as a result of these technologies.
0: What a great stepping off point. I, I want to thank you for joining us today, Jerry. It, it's been a pleasure. And all those people who are listening, I highly recommend getting your hands on the book, The Technology Fallacy by Jerry Kane, on Phillips, Jonathan Kopolsky, and Garth Andres. It's an exceptional book. It provides a lot in a few pages, but a lot of really good case studies. We didn't get into very much on the interviews they'd done, but able to see how organizations have done it, some that are common sense names that you'd expect to be in the forefront of digital transformation, and some that probably aren't as likely to be household names in that context. So, um, Jerry, again, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just raise a top 10 banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week.
1: You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts